Take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 7. We're in a verse-by-verse study from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through Genesis chapter 11. It's a section of the Old Testament that has incredible meaning and significance even over into the New Testament. The series is appropriately entitled, Thinking Straight in a Crooked World. The topic of last week's message out of Genesis chapter 6 was Noah's Ark. Boy, I had fun preaching to a group of, uh, of kids last week. And they were so engaged and parents were engaged. It was a great day. If you'll recall, we honed in on one simple truth last week. Here was that truth. Listen to God. Listen to God. God is still speaking today. You know how he's speaking? He's speaking through the word of God. I promise you, if you'll make a habit of getting up in the morning and reading your Bible and praying, you will find that God will speak to you through the word of the living God. God speaks to us in services like this through music and he speaks to us through the preaching and teaching of the word of God listen to God now God spoke to Noah in chapter 6 and he gave him four messages he said Noah, I want you to understand judgment is coming secondly I want you to understand that salvation is possible and thirdly faith is required and fourth obedience is crucial Now today, we're going to focus our attention on Genesis chapter 7. The title of the message is The Flood. Now, if I had to focus on one truth out of this whole chapter, I would say this truth is this. Seize your God-given opportunity. In other words, if I were to put it in terms of Noah and the ark and what was happening in the flood, don't miss the boat. Don't miss the boat. Whatever you do, don't miss the boat. Receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord today if you've never done that. Turn from that sin that's humiliating you and crushing you. Align your life with God's will and God's word. Trust God to invigorate your marriage And make a fresh commitment to the Lord today. Seize your God-given opportunities. Now, when it comes to the subject of the flood, I was fully intending to preach the entire chapter of chapter 7. But as I began to study, I quickly discerned that I needed to lay some foundation stones in order for us to really understand Genesis chapter 7. There are many people, when they read Genesis chapter 7, they have a question about God. They would say something like this, why would God destroy every person, everything on this planet that breathed except Noah and his family and the few animals that he brought to the ark? Is God just and fair? Many people who have read chapter 7 have come away with that question. And and here's what we've learned so far in our study. We've learned that God is fair, that God is just, 
when God sized up the human race in Noah's day, he found it to be corrupt to the core. Look at chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now, when you read it, you're reading and studying the Bible. When you see something repeated several times, it's repeated for emphasis' sake. God is shining a spotlight on this problem that had developed on, the, on, on this planet among the human race in Noah's day. And, and let me tell you, the human race in Noah's day was corrupt to the core and violence filled the earth. Sounds sort of like what we're witnessing today in the world that we live in. Now we know from our study that Noah was given a commission by God to build a big ark, not, not a tiny little boat like it's in children's uh, books, but a big ark. And he was to preach righteousness to the world and the human, human race of his day. This godly man found favor in the eyes of God and God used him and he obeyed God and did exactly what God told him to do. Furthermore, not only did the, this world of this day, was it corrupt to the core, not only did they have Noah and Enoch and, and other godly people preaching righteousness to that generation, but they also had prophetic fulfillment. Remember, Enoch had a son by the name of Methuselah. Methuselah lived to the ripe old age of 969 years. 969 years. The name Methuselah means this. It means when he dies, it will come. You say, well, what will come? The flood. The flood. Now, I want you to think about this. God never does anything in the way of judgment without first providing preachers and prophetic fulfillment to set the stage. In fact, if you go over to the book of Revelation, you'll find in chapter 11 of Revelation that God in the tribulation period will send two supernatural witnesses to bear witness to the glorious gospel of Christ. And God will ordain and set his his mark upon 144,000 Jews who will be Jewish evangelists who will carry the gospel across the world in the tribulation period. And then in Revelation chapter 7, you find a whole host of people around the throne of God in heaven worshiping the Lord. And the angel asked John, John, who are these? And John said, I don't know you. I need some help here. And so the angel said, these are those who are martyred in the tribulation. 
They were martyrs. Why were they martyred? Because they gave witness to Christ in an age when it was outlawed to preach the gospel of Christ. And, and I want you to know, not only did that final gen, will this final generation in Revelation have the preaching of, of these great men and women of God, but I'll tell you, dear friend, they'll also have prophetic fulfillment. Listen, the entire book of Revelation is jam-packed full of prophetic fulfillment. It's like God's saying to the world, and I believe it's not going to be too far in the future, God's saying to the world, you better get ready. Judgment is coming. I'm going to judge the world just like he did in Noah's day. So I think we can honestly say that God is fair and just in what he did in, in the flood when he destroyed the human race, save eight people, Noah and his family. Now, other people question the validity of the flood. And I want to make two statements about this. The flood is historical, not mythical. As we move through the text, you'll notice that God placed a time stamp on these events. Take your Bible and look at verse 6 of chapter 7. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. That's a time stamp that God places upon his word. And then if you'll notice verse 11. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were open. Then look at verse 24 of chapter 7. The water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would the Holy Spirit of God inspire Moses to include this, this, these references to time in here in, uh, in Genesis chapter 7 in relation to the flood? I, I think God is communicating something to us in our generation. He's saying to us, listen, you better, you better believe that the flood is a historical event. It's a historical event, not a myth. Then notice this. The scriptural evidence for the his, historicity of the flood. In Isaiah 54, verse 9, the Bible says, For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. Even in the prophet Isaiah speaks of Noah's flood. That was 700 years before Christ was incarnated. And then Psalm 29.10. I love this verse. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Now, I want you to notice something about 29.10 of Psalm. I want you to notice it says, The Lord said as the king at not a flood, but the flood, a very specific flood, the flood that inundated the world and destroyed all who had the breath of life in them. 
And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, even in the New Testament, there are numerous references to the flood. In, in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7, Peter wrote this, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. Hey, they're here today, right? If you're looking for a prophetic fulfillment, you need to understand that this kind of stuff is happening today. Believers are being mocked all over the world. The Bible is being mocked. Jesus is being mocked all over the world. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 5, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, look at this, being flooded with water. A direct reference to the flood in Genesis chapter 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The Bible prophesies that God is going to judge this world that we live in. And God is going to judge this world by fire. I can't tell you a time, I can't give you a date, but I can tell you on the authority of the inspired, infallible, and errant word of the living God that the day is coming when God is going to unleash his fury upon this planet filled with men and women who mock him, who mock the word of God, who mock those who believe in him, and God will destroy them not by flood, but by fire, the Bible says. Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 to 39. Here's more scriptural evidence of the fact that the flood is, in fact, historical, not mythical. Now, if I needed something to really seal the deal, to really convince you that what I'm saying is true, I think the most powerful witness to the flood would be the Lord Jesus himself, right? Look at what the Bible says in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. These are the words of Jesus. For the coming of the Son of Man, in other words, when Jesus comes, and he's coming. You do know that, don't you? He's coming. The king is coming again. And he's coming not to die on a cross for our sins. He's coming to rule and reign forever and ever and ever over a new heaven and a new earth one day. It's going to be amazing. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, notice Jesus says, before the what? The flood, not a flood, but before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered what? The ark. Did Jesus believe in Noah and the ark? Do this. Absolutely, pastor. Jesus believed in Noah and the ark. Now, liberal scholars today will tell you that Noah and the ark 
is an allegory. It's, it's, not, it's not true. It's not, it wasn't real. I tell you, Jesus said that Noah and the ark were real. They were authentic. And then he said, until the day that Noah entered the ark, verse 39, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. All right, that seals the deal for me. I, I promise you this. I can stand before you in this room. I can stand before anybody watching live stream today. And I can tell you the flood of Genesis chapter 7 is historical, not mythical. It really happened. Here's another thing that I want to point out to you. It's a very important truth. The flood was global, not local. There are several reasons I believe this to be true. You do realize that there are those of liberal persuasion who believe that this flood mentioned in Genesis chapter 7 was a local flood. It only happened in the region of Mesopotamia. It didn't cover the whole earth, they say. Well, I believe they're wrong. And I want to show you why I believe they're wrong. Descriptively, I want you to pay attention to the language used concerning the flood. Now, take your Bible and look at Genesis 6, 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Can I ask you a question? How could God do all that in a, with a local flood? It's impossible. Look, look at this verse, verse 17 of chapter 6. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth, to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven, everything that is on the earth shall perish. Listen, we've just seen some tremendous floods in various parts of the United States. There was a tremendous flood in Florida recently. But guess what? Not everybody in the world perished in that flood, did they? Ladies and gentlemen, this cannot be a local flood. It is a global flood. Look at chapter 7, verse 4. For after seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Now look, I'm 69 years old. I've seen a lot of rain in my day. But I have never in my life seen it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Can you imagine how much water that is? And I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Wow. Look at verse 17 of chapter 7. The Bible says, Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And then verse 19 through 24, look at it. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains... Now, all right. Let's be real. So that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. Now I'm going to ask you the $64,000 question. Are you ready? How in the world can all the high mountains on the earth be covered with water if it's a local flood? 
You, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this thing out. You don't have to be some kind of theological juggernaut to figure something like this out. Very plain language used in the scripture indicates that this was not a local flood. It was a global flood. Look at verse 20. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Not only were the mountains covered, but the water went 15 cubits above. It's about 22 feet above the tallest mountains on the face of the planet. Now you're talking about a lot of water. You're talking about a flood. You say, Pastor, how could it be? I'm going to get to that in just a moment. Just hold on. Look at verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Well, I think you get the picture. Listen, friend, this was a global flood. Now, I'm making my point descriptively by looking at the language of the text, but I want you to, I'm going to make it practically, Okay. Let me make it practically. I want you to think about this. If it was a local flood, why did God tell Noah to build such a big ark? Why? Well, here's another thought. Why would Noah and his family and the animals simply move to a place where it wasn't flooding? I mean, listen, if a flood like this occurred here, a gigantic flood occurred in Carville, and everything was getting underwater, what would we do? We'd get in our vehicles, and we'd go to Mississippi, we'd go to Arkansas, we'd go to Kentucky, we'd go to East Tennessee where the mountains are, but we would escape the flood by simply moving. And I'm sure the animals were created with enough innate sense by God that they would migrate to higher ground, right? And here's another thought. Why would God make a specific covenant with Noah after the flood, if it was a local flood? Look at Genesis chapter 9, verses 11 to 17. God said to Noah, after the, after the ark landed on Mount, the mountains of Ararat, he said, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, the rainbow. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow, the rainbow, will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And look at this. Never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Listen, practically speaking, we would have to surmise that this was a global flood, not a local flood. 
we look descriptively at the language and we would have to surmise that this is a global flood, not a local flood. And then geologically, there's an ongoing debate even between evangelical scholars concerning evidence for a global flood. I would say this, as born-again believers who hold to the inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration of the Scriptures, we should never have a problem with the idea that the Creator, the Creator God has done, is doing, and will do things that counteract the laws of nature that are in fact miraculous. I don't have a problem with a miracle-working God, do you? Listen to the logic and wisdom of the German scholar C.F. Kyle, who helped to write the, the commentary on the Old Testament. He said this, and I quote, However impossible, therefore scientific men may declare it to be for them to conceive of a universal flood of such height and duration in accordance with the known laws of nature, this inability on their part does not justify anyone in questioning the possibility of such an event from being produced by the omnipotence of God, the power of God. Man, that is a great quote from a great scholar. Listen, the Bible is full of references to times when God sovereignly uh, did things contrary to the laws of nature. You say, what are some of those things, Pastor? Well, think about this. When the nation of Israel was being led out of the Egyptian bondage by Moses, they came to the Red Sea, and, and the Egyptian army was behind them, breathing down their necks, and the Red Sea was in front of them. And God told Moses, he said, you take your staff and you hold your staff over the Red Sea. What did God do? God parted the Red Sea. I mean, it just parted. And the Bible says this, the children of Israel walked across the Red Sea. Now, hold on, hold on to, your, to, your, to your seat. They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. God took the laws of nature. And he said to the laws of nature, I'm the creator God. I can do whatever I want to do. And God did it. You say, are there ev other evidences where God did things contrary to the law of nature? Well, how about the virgin birth of his son, Jesus? Have you ever heard of anybody else being born of a virgin? No. Well, Jesus, the son of God, was born of a virgin. And, and here's the... Here's the, the, the big one. How about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Have you ever seen anybody be resurrected from the dead never to die again? Lazarus died again. But I can tell you this, Jesus didn't die again. Jesus was raised from the dead. God acted contrary to the laws of nature and gave life to his son. And his son is alive today. He's seated on heaven's throne. He is the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And he's coming again one day. And he's going to establish his millennial kingdom. And then he is going to 
create a new heaven and a new earth, a place where there's no death, there's no sickness, there's no sin, there's no sorrow. And we'll, if you're a believer, you'll live forever with him and you'll serve him for all of eternity. My goodness. I could get fired up here in a minute. Now, as I studied this chapter, I thought about this. I read all about the uh, geology and meteorology and hydrology and all that kind of stuff. But you know, the most important thing when I read this chapter is theology, the study of God. What does this chapter reveal to us about God? Now, I wish I had the time. I don't. But I wish I had the time to go in great detail and go verse by verse through this chapter, but you got to come back next week. See, I'm, I'm leaving you hanging because I want you to come next week because today I've laid a foundation. Well, next week, we're going to get into the meat of Genesis chapter 7. But now look, we've established the fact that the flood is historical, not mythical. The flood was global, not local. Now, with these two truths locked in, I want to look at one verse out of chapter 7. One verse. Chapter 7, verse 1. Look at it. Then the Lord said to Noah, by the way, if you study uh, Genesis 6 through 9, those chapters, seven different times God spoke to Noah. Guess how many times Noah spoke to God? Zero. Noah says nothing. Man, he's in the presence of the almighty, omnipotent God. And he says nothing in these chapters. God does, you know, I got to think about something. Maybe we would be better off if we let God do all the talking and we do the listening. Have you ever thought about that? I, I think it would be good for us. So God told Noah about the impending flood 120 years before it actually occurred. And during that 120 years, this man who had found favor with God went about building this gigantic ark and preaching righteousness to the world of his day. Can you imagine the opposition and persecution that Noah must have experienced during that time, Noah and his family? We're not told that God said anything to him during that 120 years. Now, I'm not saying he didn't, but the Scripture does not say that God said anything to him during the 120 years. But when the work was finished and Noah had, did, had done everything that God told him to do, notice verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, chapter 7, verse 1, enter the ark. You and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. Methuselah had died. Prophetic fulfillment. Remember Methuselah's name means when he dies, it shall come. And Methuselah had died. It was time for God to judge this corrupt, violent world. And Noah simply obeyed God. Now, notice this little term, entering the ark. Enter the ark, God said. That, 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 
that command is repeated at least four times in chapter 6 and 7. Look at chapter 6, verse 18. God said, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. I just read that. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark. And then look at verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them did what? What did they do? They entered the ark. Now, I, I mentioned to you earlier that when the Holy Spirit inspires the writer of a biblical text to repeat something several times. He does it for emphasis sake. So what's the big emphasis here upon entering the ark? Well, while Noah and his family were making their way into the ark, there were no visible signs of coming judgment, no rain, no storms, nothing out of the ordinary. People were going about their business they were going to work. They were marrying and giving in marriage. They were eating and drinking. And this activity masked the deep corruption that defined the character and the conduct of the people of Noah's day. They had no idea of the impending doom that was awaiting them. I want to make this point to you. I want you to listen to me very carefully. If this chapter says anything, it says seize your God-given opportunity. Don't miss it. Whatever you do, don't miss the boat. Don't miss your opportunity that God places before you. The Bible says God saw that Noah was righteous. How was he righteous? He believed God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, the Bible says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the, righteous, uh, heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. How was he saved? How did he become righteous? He believed God. And because he believed God, he obeyed God. You see, if you believe God, God will produce a lifestyle of obedience in you and through you. So right here and right now, God is commanding some of you to obey the gospel, to repent of your sins and to place your faith in Jesus. In John chapter 7, verse 37 to 38, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I want you to understand that the ark that Noah built was a picture of the salvation that only Christ can bring to a person's life. The only way, the only way that Noah and his family could be spared from the judgment of the great flood was for them to be in the ark where they came under God's protection and provision. I can tell you this, dear friend. The only way you'll ever be saved 
put your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. That's the only way you can come under the umbrella of God's protection, provision, and salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. He's your only hope. Let me tell you, that ark was the only hope for Noah and his family. And some of you need to come to Jesus today. It, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Some of you have been searching for a long time. You've been searching for an answer to the emptiness of your life. And you've tried career. You, you've tried pleasure. You've tried money. You try, you've tried everything that Solomon mentions in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're empty. You're empty. Nothing has worked. I'll tell you, dear friend. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that labor to heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you, look at this. Oh, don't miss it. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is your chance to enter the ark. Seize your opportunity. Your God-given opportunity today. Come to Christ. He loves you. He'll forgive your sin. He'll give you new life. And for some of you who are already saved, this is your chance to be revived and refreshed spiritually. You see, God does not want you to be a carnal believer. God does not want you to be lukewarm. I'll tell you, if you'll come to Jesus today, if you'll come to this altar and bow before the Lord and say, Lord, revive my soul, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, I'll tell you on the authority of God's Word, that's a prayer He will answer. And then maybe you have this stronghold in your life. Man, it is eating your lunch. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be pornography. It could be a myriad of things. But it is eating your lunch. And listen, if you're a born-again believer, I tell you this, it is not God's will for you to be under the power of any sin. He wants to set you free. But you've got to, listen, you've got to seize your God-given opportunity. You say, well, pastor, I'll do it next week. How do you know you're going to be here next week? You could die. You could be in a hospital. You may not be here next week. This is your opportunity. Listen, I tell you this, if Noah and his family had delayed getting in the ark, they would have been swept away in the flood themselves. Procrastination is not good when it comes to these God-given opportunities that he places before you and invites you to participate in what he has for your life. I'm going to ask our staff to come, our worship team to come. And I'm going to invite you in just a moment. We're going to stand at worship. And I'm going to invite you to seize your God-given opportunity. If you would like to talk to one of our staff members about being saved, 
about giving your heart to Jesus, coming under the, the, the umbrella of God's protection and provision, come to one of our staff members. Or, or if you're here today and you say, well, pastor, I want to seize my opportunity. I'm already saved. Man, I am so carnal. I am so away from God. Come to the altar. Just humble yourself before the Lord. And ask him to revive you and to refresh you spiritually. I promise you he'll do it. Or if you've got that stronghold eating away at you. You're a born again believer. You can come to this altar and ask Jesus to set you free. He's in the setting free business. Amen. Seize your God-given opportunities. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus. We thank you for your power and authority. We thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus that through the Holy Spirit's ministry, just as you commanded Noah and his family to enter the ark, I pray the Spirit of God would command and invite men, women, boys, and girls to give their hearts to you in salvation. I pray the Spirit of God would invite men, women, boys, and girls to come to the altar and pray for revival in their spirits and to be set free from an addiction or whatever it is that's crushing them. Lord, oh God, have your way. Help us to seize our God-given opportunities today in Jesus' name.